Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have Professor Danielle Citron on the podcast. She is quite simply um, one of the leading, if not the leading expert on cyber security, uh, cyber law, cyber sex law, internet porn, all those kinds of fun things that we're going to talk about um, in, the, in the next hour or so. Uh, she's a, a chaired professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. I would read you her chair name, but it goes on for six minutes, so I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I have more important things to talk to her about. Uh, Danielle has taught at Boston University and the University of Maryland. She is a graduate of Duke undergraduate and Fordham Law School. Uh, she's a member of ALI, and I am just so happy to have you here. Thanks so much for being here. It's such a joy. Thank you for having me on. So you've written two books. Your first book, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, um, 2014, uh, about revenge porn, mostly was one of... Cyberstalking. It was like the way in which cyberstalking impairs people's life opportunities. Right. And so we ought to think about it as a civil right, as, as kind of the civil rights issue of our, among the many, but key civil rights issue of our time because it's women and minorities who are often basically driven offline and unable to work thanks to. So so not non-consensual por- pornography is just a small part sure. of the scheme in which people are right. forced offline and can't work. You know how they're, um, uh, it, it, it's a life ruination strategy, unfortunately. Well, your second book, which is coming out in September with the amazing title, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age. I, I read that book over the last week. It is a fantastic book. Um, uh, I'll probably write something about it right before it comes out, but I, ho- I hope everybody reads it because it is really, really important. And I have to say, I have three daughters, 31, 14, and 13, and, and yeah. the teenagers are fighting for their dignity in cyberspace every day. Yes, right. Um, yep. But anyway, this, this is really a great book. So let's start with this. Okay. What is the scope of the problem? What, what, what led you to write these two books? And, and, and talk to us about how grave an issue this really is. So intimate privacy, that's the privacy. Um, it's how we manage the boundaries around our intimate lives. Mm-hmm. So information and access to our bodies, our health, our minds, our close relationships, our sexual activities, our gender and sex, all the things that we consider in so many respects like make us truly human. The most, like the deepest parts of ourselves, the ability to manage access to and information about those parts of ourselves um, is intimate privacy or what I call intimate or sexual privacy. It's a foundational privacy value in my view and as I've been arguing in the last I probably say six or seven years in scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's viscerally, we get it. You know, you talk to folks and they're like, of course, you know, intimate privacy, the <laughs> privacy of our conversations with loved ones, of our naked bodies, of, you know, information about our period, you know, our, our menstruation and fertility, information about our locations that suggest the visits to, you know, psychiatrists and, you know, all the ways in which we think of like, golly, of course, Danielle, wouldn't we protect that? And the answer sadly is no. (laughs) That is when it comes to, and I've been developing this in a series of articles and now, of course, in a really different way, the book, you know, when you write a book, it is such a different way to communicate than in scholarship. And and I loved writing it so much, Um, but it is about all the ways in which individuals, who I call privacy invaders, companies, so spying Inc., um, and government spies, all the ways in which both separately and often as handmaidens to one another, so individual privacy invaders, 
um, our handmaidens to spying in companies, our handmaidens to government. Right. 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 And and those the convergence of those three threat factors and the fact that law is so woefully inadequate requires a rethinking that, that's um, a, and protection. So that's the the gist of what animates me. Right. Um, and th- I've been working on this book is incredibly uh, smart and accessible at the same time, which is a great which is a great thing. I, I really I have a lot of non lawyers listening to this. They should read this book. It's not. It is not a book for lawyers. It is, it is a book for everybody. You tell story after story after story in this book about women um, and some men uh, who whose who sexual privacy. That's probably not the right phrase, but whose sexual privacy was. No, I, I refer to it in both ways, right? Yeah. I just don't want people to think it means just sex. Right. Right. Can, can you make this real yeah. for the for the listeners and just give a couple examples of of what terrible things can happen? Because I have to be honest, a lot of this book scared me to death. Yeah. I know. I always feel like I come with the trigger warning just looking at me, <laughs> yeah. you know, like knowing the work. But yeah. let me tell you one example of a privacy invader. Yeah. And then I'm going to link the privacy invader to Spying Inc. And then perhaps even to the government. But okay. um, and maybe with a different story. But Joan um, was a, a recent graduate of, of, you know, had recently graduated from, you know, her second, you know, she had gotten a graduate degree and was working um, and she was traveling for work. She stayed in a New York hotel. And when she got home, she received an email from someone called Not a Bad Guy Too. And the email included a link to um, a video posted on Pornhub, which was a, a video of her showering Jeez. and going to the bathroom. And the person said, not a bad guy, too, I want more nude photos or I'm going to send these to all your contacts on LinkedIn and your friends from graduate school. Ugh. Now, her LinkedIn profile was public, as one does. Right? Right. That's the point of LinkedIn. That's the point of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point, right, is to, is to um, create and forge and harden opportunities, and, right, economic opportunities and relationships. So uh, she... Uh, her, one of her professors, a close friend of mine, she called me. Um, what do I do? Um, you're not sending him anything. Tell me what happens next. He lived up to his promise. So in 24 hours, he then sent by email the, video, the vid- links to the videos on Pornhub and then other adult sites to all of her LinkedIn contacts and her family members. Her LinkedIn contacts included her colleagues from graduate school as well as work, right. where she was working at the time. And when she didn't respond to him, he sent another follow-up email to say, well, you should just send me more nudes because I'm going to torment you. Like, I'll, I can stop. I can be a nice guy if you send me nudes. And she didn't respond. And he then, and her then, she's in the middle of working, right? She's a young person. She's in her 20s. She had a wonderful boyfriend at the time. Well, they're now married, but they were going to get married. She had all these plans. Um, and it took night and day to figure out where the videos were posted, asking sites to take it down. Usually they ignored her. Um, Pornhub helped her for a while, but then after a while we got annoyed with her, you know, and so, and the video had her full name embedded in the title of the video. Oh my. So her full name, and then some had her home address. So an apartment in the city, in a city. So it was frightening. And it, in many ways, like shook her sense of security, her sense of herself, um, and how her coworkers saw her. She would always think 
they see me naked. They see me going to the bathroom. Right. Right. Like it's, I can't, I know, I see myself through their eyes and I'm embarrassed. I feel vulnerable and scared. And so she, like it radically changed her relationship with herself, Hmm. with her friends. She shut down all of her social media activity in the fear that because it was clear he knew exactly where, and I'm assuming it's a man because just statistically that's the case, who are the perpetrators of non? She experienced non-consensual pornography, sextortion, which is the extorting of attempted extortion of her new, of nude images, um, and video voyeurism. So can many we go, can we go back one second, can... Danielle? I'm sorry. Sure. So mm-hmm. someone had planted a video camera in the shower. Yes, presumably a hotel employee. <sighs> right, and this what brings alive sort of, and then we can talk a little bit about companies too, right? That you can sue the hotel for negligently enabling crime, which is something she's doing right now. And of course it's in discovery and it's nasty. Right. But nonetheless, what she's doing right now, she can't sue the site operators, right? There are 9,500 sites whose raison d'etre is video voyeurism, like hidden cams, non-consensual pornography, and the tormenting of individuals. Like Pornhub is a porn site with a sidecar of non-consensual intimate imagery, right? There are sites over 9,500 sites whose like whole purpose, whose business model is the abuse of individuals, often women or um, gay, uh, bi, and queer men. Yeah. And trans trans women with male genitalia, right? So these sites are a specialty, are women and gender and sexual minorities. What, what right? and reading through all of you, and reading throughout the book, it just goes through the entire book. I, I, I you know, I, I'm not a prude. I don't think I am. Um, I had no conception there was an industry for non-consensual porn totally. imagery. I knew National Enquirer and places like that would, you know, yeah. do everything. But I had no idea this industry even existed, much less to the scale you're talking about. Right. And it prevents people from pursuing job opportunities. I have a... a young gay man who I interviewed who explained he was a, a Capitol Hill staffer. And he's like, I really thought I wanted a career in politics. Right. But that's off the table. Uh. Like, my my picture is being shared on four group texts with hundreds of people on Telegram and on a site, I'm not going to say the name, but a site devoted to gay men where you inclu- they include your grinder handle, your Facebook, na- like your full name. Right. Some, if you can, it's like a game. Posters will say, "Do you know this guy? This is his grinder handle. Here are the photos. Got any more? What's his home address? Where does he work? Right?" And so they're threads devoted to specific individuals and by location. Some sites are devoted to colleges and you know universities, and they're in those hubs. Let's say Duke or Georgia State by name, right? Some it's, by source. It's not illegal. Well, <laughs> the business of non-consensual intimate imagery is immune from responsibility. Because of 230. Thanks to a federal law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so these site operators can collect data, can sell that data, can share that data, can have subscribers. They can, of course, they and they do, solicit user-generated content. Right. They choose what they can often choose what comes up and goes down. The publisher kind of as what a publisher would. And they get to make money and they, when they're sued, say, ha ha, you know, sue me. And some have tried and failed. Um, can we back up one second on that on that on the two thirty thing? Because sure. uh, um 
I know. It's like everyone's always like, what do you mean the Internet's so right. treated so well, differently well, so, after 25 so, years? So just for the non-lawyers listening, say, oh, those that don't know, <clears throat> Section 230 is a federal law that basically makes Internet sites above a certain volume of traffic. No, not above a certain volume. No. You could be small as can be. Okay. Right. I- no, immune from no content. No interactive yeah. service provider. You and there's no pornography. There's no um, invasion of privacy exception. I mean, I, uh, pornography. There's no, no exception at all for that. No, That's insane. No. Right. Well, we're working on it. Right. And so right. I've been over the last. I would say it was very unpopular in my early career for suggesting that Section 230 should be reformed with a duty of care, reasonableness you standard. You and me both, by the way. Should, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not very popular or wasn't very popular. Now it's like normal to suggest what I'm saying, which is kind of fun. You know, many years later, what was like totally off the wall is not insane at all in working with staff on on Section um, 230 reform proposals, though. You know, I, we've been working on a non-consensual intimate imagery bill in Congress, and it's taken a long time. And still, and I know you spoke to my wonderful colleague, Professor Marianne, Dr. Yes. Marianne Franks, yes. um, who is like my, we always say like we're partners in advocacy and deterring crime, and we're not sure how to say that she's about awesome. each other, but awesome. we love each other. Yeah. She's amazing. And so we, we've been working on vis-a-vis perpetrators, right? that it be a federal crime. We've made progress in the states vis-a-vis perpetrators. Right. But as you said, well, like let's focus on the platforms. They're yeah. the, the least cost avoider. They're in the best position to minimize harm yeah. and they're making money off of the abuse. Why don't they internalize the negative externalities, right? They're causing a lot of suffering. Yeah. Why are why are they able to do that? How has this persisted? Yes. <laughs> you know, since 1996 and and uh, stay tuned, I guess, is what I would say, is that I'm working hard on changing well, thank you the for that, legal for landscape. That. Thank you for that work. A quick tangent on this um, that I find interesting. So I've done several panels in the last couple of years, including a symposium at Mercer on mm-hmm. Section 230. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and regular listeners to this podcast know that uh, Brian Leiter, who was on last week, and myself. Oh, nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Might, and now maybe you're a third. Um, might yeah. be the only law prof- and, and Dr. Franks might yeah. be the only law professors in the country who have kind of a European view on the First Amendment and these issues because I got to tell you, Daniel, when I when I talk about reforming 230 and making it more like Europe, at least if you're if you're notified that something is yeah. like this, you should take it down. No, I've found 90 percent of American law professors get all worried and free speech oriented and free speech this yeah. and free speech that, and and I I get so impatient these days. Because Europe is much better at this than we are, right? Am I wrong about that? Two thoughts yeah. or two quick reactions. Yeah. Um, Europe and, and the UK don't yet have a duty of care for online platforms. That's sort of like in the works, mm-hmm. something I have worked on with some folks in the UK. Um, but they are, but that's the different question between platform responsibility, of course, and then whether speech um, can be understood as legally protected. And so, in some respects, I guess I don't mess with doctrine in my work. I've been That's all I do. Careful. No, I understand. And 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 I do think we need all types of moments of reassessment of the way that we treat platform responsibility, mm-hmm. which has been um, all the way down the, you know, pretty much down the stack, pretty much hands off. Yes. Um, and I think we need to treat different places in the stack differently because of their differential power and responsibility and access to information that they so secure. Um, but 
so in some sense, yes, it's a European-esque balancing, more thoughtful, nuanced approach, I think, to, to the question of platform responsibility, which in the way I would reform it, I would keep Section 230, but I would condition the over the underfiltering provision on reasonable steps to engage in to take reasonable steps to address illegality causing serious harm, and that if you and that's writ large, like motion to dismiss defendant says I engage in reasonable practices. The the nature of this lawsuit is intimate privacy, and we engage for the, our size and volume and and what we do in reasonable steps to address non-consensual intimate imagery. That course causes serious harm and if you can show that in one case so you screwed up in the plaintiff's case but if over the over the long range of things your practices are reasonable you get to enjoy the immunity i mean it's what cox and wyden wanted they were the progenitor they, they it was their provision to congressmen chris right. cox and ron wyden um they wanted to incentivize self-monitoring right right they wanted the the hope was this tool would ensure that platforms act as good Samaritans Didn't in the work. blocking and filtering of offensive content. And that's the title of the statute, right? <laughs> Section 230C, right? Good Samaritan blocking and filtering of offensive content. And so there are some of us who have been working on this issue. So Olivia Sylvain, who's now an advisor to the FTC's commissioner, um, Lena Khan, you know, he in a series of works has talked about design duties mm -hmm. and how Section 230 should not exempt the design choices that someone like Facebook makes that those design choices end up resulting in anti-discrimination, like in discrimination, in housing violations, right? And that and that anti-discrimination law can be brought to bear is something that Olivia, um, Olivia Sylvain has argued. Um, and I've been doing the more, uh, I, I think we're, Birds of a feather, right? But my approach is a little more comprehensive. I think we need comprehensive reform. I think, and I've I've worked on FOSTA, like on on the piecemeal efforts, which have been a disaster, right? Like, and the, because of the way it's written, right? So right. I think every time a staffer calls me with some idea, I'm like, why don't we think more comprehensively and carefully? Why do we have to have a dumb carve out? <laughs> right. right. You know, and I right. just I'll help. I always talk to staffers. I'm always like, oh, you know, here goes another bad idea. So my, um, my, my understanding is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, that in, in Germany, for example, if Facebook or Twitter is notified right. that, that there right. is something on their site that is either illegal. Hate speech. Right. That's the Nets DG law. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have to take it down. Yes. So that's German law, not the EU's. Right. Um, Shouldn't we have that? Under the auspices of the EU, right? So NetDZ is a law that covers hate speech and other forms of illegality. And you have to, within a reasonable period of time, but really right. 24 hours, take down hate speech. And the major platforms, so the five sort of major players, have signed an MOU with the European Commission, not just Germany, right, to voluntarily take down hate speech within 24 hours. Um so yes, that like the copyright, what's interesting is, do you ask folks, do you find, Eric, when you talk to American lawyers, right, yes. and law professors about Section 230, and they flip out, they're like, oh, speech, yes. ah, the sky's yes. going to fall. Do you say to them, but why don't you say this about copyright? Right. Intellectual property falls outside Section 230, and you have a notice and takedown regime under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, 
You flipping out about that? I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> like, so my theory, you know, my, so- theory, my theory on that, by the way, which is uh, not well formed at all, is it goes back to private property in America. Yes, I mean, fair? is that fair? I think that is fair, right? That we have this, even though, of course, we're talking about speech often. Yeah. Right. Um, and the absurd idea that what's interesting is that. Women are often told, like, it's, if it's your nude photo, you can use copyright law to these websites. And the websites totally just ignore people because they know they don't have pro bono counsel or counsel because it's so expensive right. to sue. Right. And so even DMCA in the hands not of powerful players, right? So it's property of the un, of the vulnerable. I yeah. don't give a shit. They right. pay, excuse my language, they pay That's no fine. attention. You, you, right? you can curse here, I think, although she is you behind me. I'm not sure. But I think you can curse okay. her. Yeah. Um, no, I'll it, stop now. But, you know, that. Yeah. But it, it is like an absurd – I feel like my, my colleague and friend, Ann Bartow, has been saying this for years, yes. that the absurdity yes. that copyright is we're okay with it in Section 230 world, you hear little complaint, right? But when it comes to often the yeah. crimes and torts – Civil rights violations involving the vulnerable, like, oh, speech, you know. I find that, that reaction all the time, and it drives me nuts. Um, can we, I want to go 30,000 feet for a second. Um, in your book, you propose uh, privacy as a civil right. We should view this as a civil right. On uh, yeah. my listeners to this pod know that I'm constitutionally required once a podcast to mention Richard Posner, my dear friend, um, and... Um, I was lucky enough to have conversations with him once a week for many, many years. And mm-hmm. he, he, and of course, he's, he's um, not healthy now. But if he heard this conversation, um, I know what he would say. And you and he would really go to blows on this. Because, yeah, we would disagree enormously, yeah. especially about the meaning of sex. I think he's, like, deeply wrongheaded about love and sex. Well, I he think he's whole... actually changed his mind. That book he wrote, he's yeah. Back. But like that's Martha not... wrote a wonderful Nussbaum yes. um, critique. Yeah. And I like can't reduce sex and love to markets in the way that right. he does. No, he's he's blocked that back. Of and, the and, yeah. intangible part, right? Like, yeah. yeah. So I think we disagree on a whole lot of things. Well, let, let, let me mention what he was going to say. By the way, Martha and he are good friends. So I mean, we're good friends. Oh no, so, I know. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah. Um, he thought. I'm not defending this. I'm just – he thought sure. yeah. any notion of privacy in this world is gone. Right. It's secrecy. And, and by the way, like, let me just support what he said. Mm-hmm. not supporting it, but let me give one more data point. And then he would talk about all the ways we have no privacy left, and we need to just get over it. We don't. My teenage – my four, and you, I know your daughter's graduating college in, this week. Congratulations. Two, yeah. Um, I have one in law school and the other graduating. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, my teenage daughters, privacy is not – they don't have any cons- – Privacy to them, I mean, they would be offended by nude pictures being, but they don't, their life on the internet, especially after COVID, is just public. I mean, they, they don't have a sense of privacy. They really don't. Um, so, so talk to me about privacy as a civil right. I think you right. should talk to them more because teenagers, and this is empirical work done through studies of, of teens, they actually have a profound sense of privacy and trust. That is the circles that they share their content with. They have a sense of community, and and um, there are norms around expectations and attitudes that actually is much more a privacy expectation than you think. That is, when they're posting, they don't think their teacher. That is, when they're you know posting on Instagram, their communities of friends they're sharing with. At least this is according to empirical work, and Dana Boyd's done some really important work on like teens and privacy and their expectations. 
And that's not to say idiosyncratically your daughters think there's no privacy and, and they ascribe to the idea that we should just get over it, right? That could be true. But, but empirically, there are lots of studies about young people oh. and their expectations of privacy are pretty nuanced rather than the, you know, folks who came to this as, as the digital kind of like wasn't what we grew up with. Um, you know, get over it attitude. Right. So two things. One, but one, you, so but I, let I, me, yeah, well, you want to ask me the question. Of I like, do, but that, hold on one second. Right my, so, so, so my kids would say, we've tried to tell them over and over again, never say anything online you wouldn't want everyone in the world to see. And they get that. Like intellectually, they get that. But I got to tell you, I think have, mm-hmm. I, I, I raised a kid. I think COVID changed a lot because for a year yeah. and a half, they were they had no... This was work. Yeah. This was love. Yeah. This device, yes. right, that yes. you and I are communicating with right now yeah. was so much of our life was yeah. through these things, right? And so we need to think about how much even more important these devices are now. Agreed. Right? It, it, By my lights, COVID amplified the need for intimate privacy. Yeah, I agree. That I is agree. COVID insured, right? My my spouse is working upstairs. He used to be in an office in Baltimore, or right. Silicon Valley, or DC, right? And now, you know, at his firm, NEA, they're not really going in. You know, like he can right. live in Charlottesville, right? So that this device and the Alexas, you know, the Echoes in your kitchen, and the Internet of Things that's connected to your television, your phone, this is everything, right? Yeah. And so. If indeed, I want us to use those tools. You know, like folks always ask me, am I a tech skeptic? And the answer is, I am a tech realist. I love these tools. I use them, right? But I also understand that I have no privacy because law is insufficient. And in these privacy policies, companies are saying we're sharing it with third parties. And I want us to get the most out of these tools. I want us to ensure that these tools don't result in structural discrimination. I want to make sure that each and every one of us, not just women and minorities, right, that all of us enjoy intimate privacy so that we can use all of these tools in ways that are intimacy enhancing, dignity and reifying and ensuring, right, and autonomy securing. I want us to use them, right? But, you know, of late, and I'm sure this is like going to be something you're going to be preoccupied with after some point in June, you know, if Dobbs comes down as it does. Yeah. I used to tell young women and girls, like, can they use period tracking apps? And I would say, look, 98% of all the free apps, there are studies that show that they are sharing the information with marketers or then sharing it with data brokers and it could impact your health insurance rates, you know, your ability to get employment, that is there are all these ways in which lack of protection is going to bite you in the ass later on down the road. Yeah. But now the use of these apps provides circumstantial evidence for a termination. Right. And that states can come for you, right? You may be convicted, even if you go out of state. I feel like I was talking to one of my colleagues, George Rutherglen, who was like, the long arm of that state's law, you get your termination in another state choice of law, like it may be that your local prosecutor is coming for you. And I know you live in a state where you probably are worrying about this for your colleagues, kids and your kids and and anyone and everyone, right? That is, it's not just women and girls, but they have partners. 
right? It's this yeah. whole society problem. And that if you use these period tracking apps, unfortunately, I say delete them. So, right. So Sadly I, so. I don't want to have to say that to my children, but I do. What went through my mind when you said that is, um, is the dual-edged nature of the internet in general. Um, yes. One of the things Brian. One of the things Brian has written is that it, it's an existential change in the world that no, we haven't really come up, we haven't really come to yeah. terms with it. But when you were saying all of that and you brought up Dobbs, what I was thinking was in a post-Dobbs reversal of Roe versus Wade world. This, this may be crazy. You may, you may you may hang up on me on this. I don't know. But what I was thinking because I work a lot with Planned Parenthood was yeah. we're going to need this kind of technology to help women find right. and get abortions. You and know what? Yes. But that's privacy ensures that they can do that. Right. Without worrying about the state's long arm of the law. Right. right. I agree. See, that's why I want us to have intimate privacy. Right. I am not the barrier head in the sand. I'm on Twitter. I've been advising these companies for years and years. Right. Like, I want us to use Bumble and Spotify and uh, and Facebook and Twitter, but I understand a the challenge, right? And b if they're selling my data, uh uh-uh. uh, you know, like right. there there are certain things like I don't allow anyone to have an a echo in my house, you know, like no thanks. Having right. an Alexa listen to my conversations and tape it, and then be storing the, the video voice transcriptions, which have tremendous amount of false positives according to computer scientists. Like I'm good, no thanks. Is, you know there there are lines that even I draw. <laughs> right, right. About certain tech. Right. So so I am constantly amazed how with my phone on but not engaged. I mean the phone's in my pocket, not on but in my pocket. And I'll talk about um, going to Bermuda in a few weeks or whatever. And then I get all these ads for Bermuda. And, and I'm, you know, I, you're searching, you're emailing. It's not, they're not really, I mean, it's kind of an apocrypha story that they're listening to you. Okay. And if they were, okay. if they were listening to you, right, we might have problems with wiretapping laws. Like, yeah, okay. I think that would be a very big mistake. But I do think you don't realize how much your, your content of your emails is being mined by gmail to pitch you ads you might say well isn't that a violation of ECPA or the story communications act and the answer is no because they are mining it but not i mean there's like an under you know the way in which we understand our federal uh electronic privacy laws is they can do that now, hold on back not. hold on hold on hold on no, I, I missed this okay google can google does google does look at my work emails Mm-hmm. to see for patterns to send me advertisements. That's right. Patterns of words to send you advertisements. Mm-hmm. How, how does Google get in? They, they have your Gmail. But, but, my, <laughs> so but, my, but my work mail is so, not a Gmail. So your work that is different. But your Gmail, yeah. right? I guess that's what I meant. Like okay. when your, your email provider right. um, can be looking at that content to serve okay. you ads and it doesn't violate okay. federal communications privacy law. One of the things your book talks about over and over, and I, I said to my wife, again, I'm not a prude, but I did not know this was a thing. And people may laugh at me when they hear this, but the upskirt problem. This, right. you know, again, father of three daughters. This, can you explain that? Because I, I, sure. I was just... I was just shocked, to be honest. Yeah, humanity can be, as you said, like we have um, (coughs) we have very (laughs) pro-social practices and uses of technology, and then some really like vicious, cruel 
um, privacy yeah. invading practices, including using your cell phone, easy to do, or cameras in sneakers or in your watch to take photos up people's skirts. And, and then so sell them to sites? And then you sell them to sites? Yeah, then you upload it onto video voyeurism sites. And there are sites devoted, literally called Hidden Camera. They're not like all that swift, these folks. They always <laughs> have the same names. It's like, can you get original? Like Hidden Cam, Hidden Camera, really? Hidden Image. Like, okay, you know, how many times? Like, why don't you think of something clever to call yourself? But they, you know, people go, went to protest during the Black Lives Matter movement um, and took they said it was like a great opportunity. Posters on these sites would say great opportunity. A lot of people wearing skirts. Super time to get some pics. Oh, my. So. That it, has to it, be illegal. How is that not illegal? It's not a niche. You know, what's interesting is that there are a number of states that are passed upskirt um, cr criminal statutes. Um, there are video voyeurism laws that courts, and, and this is true of Georgia, have found they don't apply because it's not a the court understood um, private place as not including being in a supermarket and someone right. um, takes an upskirt photo in, at Walmart, you know, up your skirt. Um, and then I think the Georgia legislature revised its statute to make clear that it covered upskirt photos. So, but the problem is um, treating the practices of upskirt photos, sextortion, video voyeurs, you know, the, the person I talked about, the the young graduate of, yeah. of um, you know, that she had experienced in the hotel, yeah. right? She experienced different forms of intimate privacy violations, not upskirt photos, but like another full array. Yeah. And the problem is viewing them in a in a siloed <laughs> manner prevents us from seeing the fullness of the harm and the fullness of the wrongful behavior. And so what happens is lawmakers end up criminalizing these practices in a piecemeal and couch can way always as misdemeanors. So law doesn't get enforced. Right. It's just not worth the resources right. to enforce these laws. Laws that we have worked really hard uh, at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative to get passed. So when Marianne and I wrote our first, we wrote the first article um, suggesting the criminalization of non-consensual pornography called Criminalizing Revenge Porn, we wrote it in 2014. Right. There were three states that criminalized the practice, and I'm sure she told you, there are now 48 states, Guam and DC, and there's some, there are a few statutes we like, but when they come out of committee, and this was true in my experience at Maryland, they're like broken, you know, they're overbroad and under, you know, they're right. like just ineffective and they're misdemeanors and no one uses them. So we have a lot of work to do. And I think a key part of that work has to under, is to understand all these different types of violations as intimate privacy violations. So Could lawmakers can appreciate the breadth of right. the harm, which we we've only gotten into a little bit, but so um, so well, everyone knows about the Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court has gutted horrifically, but did work for a while there. Um, are you in favor of some kind of when you call it a civil right, some kind yeah. of digital privacy equivalent type law to the Voting Rights Act? That's right. We need a federal bill. Mm -hmm that secures, that recognizes intimate privacy as a right that each and every one of us enjoys, but that also includes special protection against invidious discrimination and structural discrimination, because that's often what happens. Like when your, <clears throat> sorry, health information is then provided to a health insurer, a lot of those metrics being collected about women includes time off of work and it costs them. 
That is their their health insurance is going to go up, their life insurance may go up, their opportunities change. And so the impact on women and gender and sexual minorities um, and then racial minorities is outside, so outsized. So we need a federal law that protects intimate privacy as a civil right, one that everyone enjoys, and also that includes anti-discrimination commitments. And the reason why I say, like, why call it a civil right? What's that giving us, right? It's giving us two, there are two important pieces. One's expressive, Mm -hmm. and the other is really practical. So the expressive part is it demonstrates how important it is. That is, it says to each and every one of us, "This this is a right that you enjoy, that we can't take it away without a really damn good reason, right? And that we recognize that you need intimate privacy to fall in love, to form close, dear friendships, to develop yourself and figure out who you are, right? and to enjoy self-respect and social respect, right? That we need that. But it also is a recognition, once you call something a civil right, you can't, you can't just take it away for no good reason. You need a good reason, right? Right, right now, we just, in privacy policies, just say, sorry, too bad, so sad. And that a civil right would fundamentally change. It would say that you can't, that, that is, I, and I recommend a number of ways in which we would need to protect intimate privacy, including an anti-discrimination mandate, but also substantive protections. Because once you call something, this is the practical payoff, once you call something a civil right, that is under the modern civil rights laws, we view that the guardians of civil rights, that is the employers, public transportation, like think of the guardians of a, the right for the disabled to take a, you know, uh, um, advantage of all the th- right. life opportunities, right? right? That is the caretakers. We view public transportation as the caretaker of a civil right to ride the subway, the train, the bus, right? And we have to engage in, and as the guardians of those opportunities, provide reasonable accommodation. To the disabled, right? Yep. And it's true of employers when you, not only for the disabled, but vis-a-vis discrimination in the workplace, that you're the guardian of people's employment opportunities and you owe them protections, right? And so I that shift is a practical one, right? It enables us to see the collectors of our intimate data as the guardians of our intimate data, right? That they owe us duties of care and loyalty and sometimes to not collect, and sometimes to never share and sell, right, right. intimate information. So um, the, pol- the politics of this is um, somewhat complex, I think, and interesting to me. To build a coalition to get that kind of civil rights law passed, I feel like there is a chance this actually could be one of the few issues we have left in America that could be bipartisan. Because, yes. right, you have Republicans right. and conservatives who do want to, do things to 2.30, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And who, at least in theory, are kind of anti-porn. I'm not sure they really are, but, you know, in theory. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually worried about, you know, and I identify as a progressive and a liberal, but I'm actually worried about the liberals on this issue and their, and their worries about free speech. Am I, am I worrying too much about that? You're not wrong to worry, mm-hmm. right? So, so the EFFs, who I love and adore and think they're a great organization, but think that my 230 idea is terrible (laughs) you know like having just spoken to a group of them online i love them (laughs) you know wanted to give me meaningful feedback and talk to me about my proposals for 230 because they're wonderful right and they wanted to make it the strongest bill that they hate less (laughs) the least (laughs) right 
but I think you're right. But I do think that a federal civil rights bill for intimate privacy that would put the onus on companies to only collect that th what they legitimately need, right? And that doesn't threaten um, intimate privacy and that they not sell certain intimate data to third parties, I feel like I could absolutely get the EFFs and the ACLUs on board with that, right? So- The ACLU is a tough one, which, but I hope so. <laughs> well, I think there's ways in which you're right, but that intimate information, if, you, if a company doesn't need it to provide the service, why is it collecting and selling uh, it? I agree, no, no, I agree. consent? I think that there is at least an opportunity for conversation. But I do think it's, and this is Dr. Frank Shirley talked to you about this, yes. that the ACLU's position on facial recognition software, which they think is a terrible idea that you shouldn't be collecting faces as you walk outside, right. is a privacy problem, but not, you know, a picture of my vagina that I shared with someone I care yes. about. Fair that's enough. an abs that makes no sense, right? right. And that's something mm -hmm. that Mary Marianne has written about a lot about yes. just how that itself is incoherent, right? To view those two things as, as the same. As, as, as so different, right? That is your privacy in your face as you walk down the street, but not in your bedroom when you, you know, share it, uh, um, um, moments with someone and they, you know, they misplace, it's misplaced trust, right? They then post your photo online, which is coerced sexual expression, Ugh. right? It's not their sexual expression. Right. It's the person in the subject of the images right. coerced sexual expression. So by my lights, like the, the story about free speech there is so attenuated to any of the values for why we care about free speech, right? And that's why five states' highest courts have upheld laws criminalizing non-consensual pornography. Yeah, but, but, but Mary... And gone through the crucible right. strict scrutiny, right? But, but, like we, right. poor Marianne, she's killing herself as we no, write she these told me. Speech. I think she told me that there were lawsuits in every state or almost every state. I know. Yes, but we have been, we have not been terribly unsuccessful. We yeah, have, right. to the extent that it's gone to the highest courts, Illinois, Vermont, Indiana, like we have prevailed. Right. Well, <laughs> and I'm happy courts, about that, believe me. The um, highest courts have said, okay, we're going to bring our strict scrutiny eyeballs on this. Right. Gone through this crucible of strict scrutiny and said they survive. They're narrowly tailored. There's a tremendous governmental interest um, to prevent harm. And so in a way, I sort of feel like, okay, you can challenge these laws, but we're going to keep winning. I, 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 there's a part of me when she, I, I kind of want to just yell at the ACLU saying there are so yeah. many important things you've done. Great work. And you could yes. be doing, why are you challenging these laws? I mean, And I guess what I might appeal to them yeah. and say is that a civil right to intimate privacy, that you're, the ACLU has been a leader from the beginning. This is like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right, yeah. on uh, decisional autonomy yeah. over women's bodies. And yeah. that intimate information is going to become a weapon. So I think they might join me. That is, I think, in a way, the you know potential for the reversal of Roe may in fact lead progressives to kind of reassess some of these arguments to realize that their commitments to women's decisional autonomy and privacy, you know, the ability to make private decisions uh, about their bodies is something that they realize is part of a, a broader story about intimate privacy and that maybe they ought to rethink some of their knee-jerk reactions. I, I, you, you, I had you at, I don't know, the ACLU. Um, a couple of tangents, um, and, and this is all such interesting stuff. And thank you so much for all the work that you are 
that you are doing um, on, on all of these things. Um, you know, okay, little Fed Court nerd alert here. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everyone listen, hold on, pay For attention. For the audience. <laughs> um, so when, you, when, when we're, we're talking about, a, I'm trying to envision a federal civil rights bill that would make some of these things illegal. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm imagining a, a, a text, very, this is all very basic, but something like the intentional transmission of someone else's nude image across the digital space, whatever, you know, is a felony or, or whatever. And now I'm, now I'm thinking about standing, that, that doctrine that non-lawyers hear about all the time, but mm-hmm. this horrible, terrible doctrine of standing, where the court has said recently yeah. that disclosing false kind of biographical information, your age, your marital mm-hmm. status, standing mm-hmm. alone is not enough to give people standing to challenge privacy companies' um, negligence in that regard or mistakes in that regard. They have to show that plus some injury. And I'm wondering... The injury that the common law has long recognized through tradition, yes, right? That's the worst decision. But that's that language, right, the, in the... So I'm trying to imagine how that same court would view the... Would they view the transmission of a naked image across digital, across digital platforms without consent by itself enough injury to satisfy standing? I'd like to think yes, but I'm not sure. Do you have a prediction for that? I, I have to say that there's one area in which, you know, since Warren and Brandeis wrote in 1890, The Right to Privacy, yeah. which was a, which is a story about intimate privacy. We often don't think about their article as about intimate privacy, but it's precisely what they right. were talking about. Right. That is the spying in the closet. Yeah. And what's whispered in the closet shall not be, you know, shouted from the rooftops. They were talking about the privacy of domestic life, in part because Sam Warren, his brother was gay, Ned, and um, had grave concerns. Well, let's about back up, Danielle, because then people not this. Some people consider this the most important law review article ever written. Um, right. Give a quick two minute background on. We only have about ten minutes left, but give me a quick two okay. minute background on that because it's a really important thing. Yeah. So, so um, in 1890, yeah. um, Louis Brandeis, uh, later Supreme Court Justice, yes. but was a law partner of like a Boston Brahmin of some sorts, um, yes. um, Samuel Warren, who had grew up in Mount Vernon um, and had a, a family that included a brother, Ned, who was studying in Oxford um, and who was gay at a time when being gay was a crime, right, and considered degenerate um, and a stain on the family. Um, and the backstory, so there's um, literature about the Warrens and their family, um, was that Ned was was at a time when it was pretty dangerous to be kind of clear about your homosexuality. He had poems and letters and lived with a group of men at Oxford. And and Warren was worried about his the news of the domestic circle, right, being uh, revealed without consent. A- right? Some of that might be 1890. Some of that might have been selfish, like protecting the family name. Their father had died, right? But... But also for Ned's own integrity and safety, right, gets his – the reason why it's Warren and Brandeis, one can assume, right, that that Warren gets Brandeis to join him on this Law Review article. In Brandeis's private letters, he sort of like um, – he, as he explained in his own private letters, like he came to see the free speech interests, right, the countervailing, which is in the article. It's not as if it's not there. That is, for purely private matters – Warren and Brandeis say, we need a right to an inviolate personality and the ability to decide for oneself. 
how one's um, intimate information um, is shared with other people, right? They make this argument, a dignity-based argument of the inviolate personality. Um, but they say at the end of the article, you know, but we understand that that privacy is going to have to give way when we're talking about a public official, right? right. And the, the public's interest in learning about that public official's family life. New York Times versus really Sullivan germane. 70 years earlier. <laughs> right. They were spot on, right? Um, and so... The article, that article set the stage for the recognition of a common law privacy tort. That shortly thereafter, um, there were decisions recognizing, um, and one very famous one, Pazovich, this is a, a, in the Georgia Supreme Court, found that, you know, a insurance company's use of a man's picture um, in an ad for advertising, which falsely suggested that he used that he used the life insurance company right. um, and used his image against his will, was like, and this is a little bit rhetorical hyperbole, but it was an enslavement, the Georgia Supreme Court found. That is, when you use someone's image without their permission, you are asserting their identity without, without you know, undermining their autonomy. Sure. And the recognition of a privacy tort was born in Georgia in 1905. And so I think the courts would look to that history and, you know, throughout like the first the early 1900s, courts were recognizing the right to privacy. Some were saying, look, the legislature do it. Many other courts in the common law were recognizing the emotional harm. Yeah. And the way in which the piercing of privacy and the inviolate personality was a dignity and emotional harm. And I think those, so the nude photo example is a perfect illustration, right? And we had cases in the early 1900s of, of people taking photographs of a woman giving birth. Uh, and then that photograph, the court said that was an invasion of privacy. Like no, And, you know, uh, some are bringing to the, um, as someone who was pretending to be a doctor and witnessed a woman's birth, there was another lawsuit, different. Um, and the court said, invasion of privacy. Right. right, you shouldn't be in the birth room if you're not really a doctor, right? And you can't pass yourself off. So that those early cases, you know, the court talks about history and tradition, <laughs> harms well, that they pay we lip service that when they want to. But so go ahead. Perhaps no, I know, of course. Like, but I think we could pitch them an argument. Yeah, that the common law that I know, and Dan Sullivan and I have written a critique of the more recent decision, Ramirez, TransUnion. the transusing case, we sort of lost our marbles in the BU Law Review online. Well, I, I'm, no, I know. I saw that. I, I, I've written a lot about standing. It's such a horrible decision. You guys did a great job. Right? I mean, like, yeah. so I know you're the real deal. That is, I'm a privacy scholar, you know, <laughs> coming to this rather than like the lens as you do of constitutional yeah. law, like in the broader ways in which courts are absurdly asserting that lawmakers can't recognize harms and rights. What? <laughs> it's such an appalling separation of powers problem, but I'm going to let you deal with that versus, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to mouth off a little bit, but yeah. noting my, you well, know, but the my history, but, and yeah, seriously, the, hi the history. But the history can help us. Yeah, I, well, in theory. But my point is, I don't know if history actually yeah. help on the ground, but, mm -hmm. but it does go to the... Uh, sorry, not your topic, but the incredibly inconsistent approach to originalism this court has, because all right. of standing law is anti-originalist. None of it. And and that's not just Siegel talking. Right. That's right. Raoul right. Berger wrote an article in 1968 saying yeah. the personal, he's the most famous academic originalist ever, 
Yes. Saying the injury in fact requirement, which the court talks about in trade. It's like made up. It's made up. Right? Anyway. Yeah. Um, we don't have to get into that now. But yeah, I'm, I'm on that. So. Just... No, but so interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. um, we're, we're about out of time. So I'm out of time. This has, been, this has been, I've learned so much from your book, from this. I hope the listeners, I have one last question. It's a little bit, okay. I don't want to, it's a, it's a hard segue because what you're talking, what you're writing and talking about is unbelievably important. And thank you for doing it. And um, good luck with 230. And by the way, if I can be of any help there, I'm happy thank to. You. because again, I'd love to know that you're on the train with me. I'm so happy. Well, I, 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 I I'm a European on free speech. Makes me one of yes. three, three of us in the, in the United States. But here's my – but on a light, much lighter note, pardon the segue, you've been to Mark Zuckerberg's house, it turns out, <laughs> the uh, the owner of – the creator of Facebook. And I just have to ask you, what was that like? Why were you there? And just a little story about that would, to end the pod would be nice. <laughs> Sure. I am. So I've been working with Facebook since, golly, I would say 2011, really closely with their chief of safety, uh, Monica Bickert, Mm -hmm. and then um, uh, the head of like gender and safety, Antigone Davis and Karuna Nain. Um, um, So I've been advising them for many years. Um, And so at some point, Zuckerberg wanted to meet people on the ground thinking about Section 230 and had dinners at his house, um, a small group. And I know there was more than one, but I don't know who went to the other ones. Okay. But uh, I, of course, had to sit next to him because why? Like, I was like, why is it me? <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, I wonderfully had Monica Bickert there and um, a number of other academics. And then um, Guy Rosen, who's chief technology, was one of the chief te- chief technologists. And so I felt comfortable because I had the people I've been working with for years, right. you know. Um, but he was open to hearing how we might. Um, approach the responsibility of platforms. There are also other people there who thought 230 changing anything would be a terrible idea. So it was a little bit tough to... Right. I tried to make my case, right? Uh, and his house is like actually kind of normal in the really? sense of inside, it's not an insane mansion, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, But it's just outside. It's like a bit of a fortress. So it's interesting for a guy who... And that's, I guess, the most I can say about the meeting yeah. um, but and the dinner. Uh, but that, you know, for someone who talks about privacy as if it's something that we should be ashamed about, like he's like, what do you got to hide? Remember his whole thing about real names yes. and, you know, um, almost like the novel The Circle, like bizarrely so, right? Like right. that his privacy is something that like, what are you hiding kind of thing? Right. Almost Posner-esque in some ways, right? Yeah. He has built a fortress around his house with shrubs. Like you can't know, you won't know it's a house because all of a sudden the shrubs open and you're like, holy shit, that's a house. Didn't you say something so, in the book about there's also a digital shield or something around this next door? Or something? No, no, he bought like a house next to him and knocked it down so that like physically it's like a fortress of, of trees. Wow. Like, so you just don't, does that make sense? It's like a normal, lovely house. Yeah. But it's. You don't see the face of the house from the front. You don't even know it's a front. Someone drops you off and you're like, this is the house? What do you mean? It's shrubs. I'm looking at shrubs. And, you know, my actually two really close friends who do content also like similar but information scholars were were there with me. We're like, where's the opening? (laughs) And then the door and then this shrub opens. We're like, okay. It sounds like Get Smart from the 1960s. That's an old reference. Yeah. I mean, I was, I'm always grateful to work with when the, the key thing is that the key decider is the C-suite, right? So I can work as hard as I want with the trust and safety folks and have on Twitter, you know, Facebook, but they've got to get the buy-in from, unfortunately, these very strong leaders like 
yeah. Zuckerberg was Dorsey, right? right. Like um, almost all white have, men too. Yep. Yeah. And unless you know your chief, your your head of safety is a woman who's amazing, but she needs Zuckerberg's sign off. Right. Right. And so we worked long and hard and it took many, many years. <laughs> right. And bad PR and bad and advertisers threatening to pull out. I almost like think I got lucky and that was convergence of terrible PR post Gamergate and the fappening, which was the posting of nude photos of celebrities. All of a sudden like, oh, we got to ban non-consensual pornography. And then A.G. Harris's work and sort of like, finally, they'll listen to it. Yeah. Like, finally, Zuckerberg's like, OK, this is bad. Right. But the safety career folk inside really care. You know, like, so it's almost this interesting thing where you know you can try really hard. I'm at the ready. I'm there to help. They don't have to listen to me. My and final, they often don't. My, my final question. Um, the, I was yes. going to say goodbye, but now I have one more question. Sorry. I could talk to you for, like, the rest of the day. But um, is he too powerful? I mean, it, it, yes. You know. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, he has – but this is just I, – I should ask my colleague Kathy Huang about, like, the the – in terms of exactly how, but he's retained power, right? Yeah. Though it's a public company um, through ownership of, of stock or whatever. And that's just like no one person, yeah. right? It's just, it's. I guess it could be. It's a company. Why not, right? And you might say the same is true of Pepsi and Coke and BP. We don't oil, do Pepsi right? down here, Danielle. Just Coke. Oh, sorry. Just Coke, right? <laughs> uh, in Georgia. But like, do you know what I'm saying? The So I, I, I can't say that as a critique from corporate law, right? Right. Maybe that makes total sense. But, you know, because of the absence of law yes. and restraints on privacy and protections for privacy and then protections at the content layer, responsibilities of online platforms, that's the power problem. Because in a vacuum in which laws provides no incentive, you're relying on market practices that are often opaque. Yep. And so individuals almost can't even put pressure and they're the least cost avoider and their incentive, more right. likes, clicks, and shares. Right, right. And so in a way, this is my call to, we desperately need law. Okay. Is, is the response, right? We need a civil rights team. law for digital privacy. You've right. convinced, you've right. persu- persuaded me. You had me at page three of the book. But I mean. Uh, so. And thank you for your kind words about the book and for reading it so carefully. I really appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. Again, I want to name the book again. It's not, you can pre-order it. I think you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Yes, you can on Amazon. The, and, and it and, helps and, if you pre-order, apparently. Okay. And the title really does, the, this is one of those books, the, um, the title says it all. The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age. If there is not a more timely book out that's the most timely book i think i've ever i've seen in the last year congratulations on it i can't wait for it to come out and thanks for being here i really appreciate it thank you so much and thank you so much for your podcast and your work oh thanks i appreciate them okay